go back to Daniel 7. And as we begin, let me pray. O great God, as Daniel desired to know the meaning of, of his vision, so also, Lord, may we know the meaning of this vision. But more ultimately, may we know you living in our hearts by the Spirit of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're back in Daniel after taking a, a break just before Christmas. And Daniel chapter 7, I think Daniel chapter 7 is probably the most important chapter in the book of Daniel because it links the, the two halves of the books together. Uh, if you like, it's the hinge, like the door hinge of, of the two, two halves of the book. Because on the, on the one hand, it, it starts the second half of the book, which has all the dreams and the visions. Theologians call this the apocalyptic bit. I mean, it, that kind of sounds pretty scary. So it starts the, all the, the scary visions and stuff. But bearing in mind that chapters 2 to 7 were not written in Hebrew, but in Aramaic, and so kind of almost form their own little section, chapter 7 is definitely part of the first half as well. And so it kind of, yeah, it just holds the book together, the beginning and the end. They all come and they meet together in Daniel chapter 7. So um, let's just dive in straight away. Uh, so we have, I've got it in three sections. Verses 1 to 8 is scary beasts. Verses 9 to 14 is the son of man. And uh, 15 to 28, suffering saints. So let's, let's, let's take those in that order. Verses 1 to 8, scary beasts. We have lots of scary beasts. Now this dream happens, verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, uh, who's king of Babylon. So to try and orient ourselves on the timeline, this is, if you like, in between chapters 4 and 5. So remember, chapter 4 was the last chapter that had Nebuchadnezzar as king. And then chapter 5 jumps right to the end of Belshazzar's reign. So this is right to like Babylon, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, sorry, he's, he's been king, he's come and gone. And this is the beginning of Belshazzar's reign. He's the king, remember, who saw the writing on the wall at the end of his reign. So we're at the beginning of that reign. Um, and we have these four beasts. Uh, and as the, as the later chapter tells us, these stand for four kingdoms. So let's just, let's just dive in, take them one at a time. So we have the first beast um, in, in verse 4. Uh, people seem to think that's Babylon. Bearing in mind as well, if you remember, if chapter 7 is linked with chapter 2, we had the, the, the statue, remember, that stood for four kingdoms. So it seems to be the same four kingdoms. We have the first kingdom of Babylon. Now, Babylon is like a lion and an eagle. So this is pretty ferocious because if I just saw a lion, that would be scary. If I, if I saw an eagle... That would be scary. But this is a lion with the wings of an eagle. So this is scary. And that last line about the mind of a human being given to it, that probably is referring to Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation in chapter 4. You remember when uh, he went mad but then was restored. So that seems to be Babylon. The next, the next beast is the beast of, of, of Medo-Persia, or the Medes and the Persians. Remember in chapter 6 you have that constant refrain, the law of the Medes and the Persians. That's probably what this one. But this one, this is like a bear. Okay, so we had a lion first. Now we've got a bear, and it's got ribs in its mouth. So this is a bear that has only just finished eating his last meal, and he's off, and he's told to eat more flesh. So he's just on the rampage, eating whatever is in front of him. He is quite terrifying. The next king is Greece. So the next kingdom is Greece, under the great king Alexander the Great. And he's described like a leopard. And leopards are swift, quick creatures. 
And you'll notice it has four wings and four heads. I think that's this idea that it's spreading in every direction. Nowhere is safe. It is spreading. And if you want to think a little bit about the, the, the empire under Alexander the Great, the Greek Empire, well, you've just got to remember that iconic Christmas film. Christmas, I w we watched this Christmas film um, this, this Christmas. I, it was the first I introduced Swanee to it. You all know this. I, it's an amazing Christmas film. Die Hard? Yeah, anyone? <laughs> but in Die Hard, which is a Christmas film, uh, the bad guy, Hans Gruber, quotes this line as he's intimidating the man he's about to steal from. He says, When Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, he wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. And then the bad guy quips, benefits of a classical education. But um, you have this idea, and that kind of captures the Greek Empire. It's spreading in every dimension. There are no more worlds to conquer. Alexander the Great has conquered them all. So this is a truly terrifying kingdom. And then we come to the fourth beast. The fourth beast, which starts in verse 7. Now, I think this fourth beast is Rome-ish. Rome-ish. It's kind of the Roman Empire, and it's kind of not. And we'll see that as we go. So it's kind of like Rome, because remember in chapter 2 with the big statue, the Roman Empire was the final kingdom. And it's the final kingdom before the Son of Man ascends. So, so Rome makes sense as the final kingdom before Jesus comes. But it's also bigger than Rome. You'll notice that this, the, the fourth beast isn't like anything. We had, we had uh, Babylon like a lion, Persia like a bear, Greece like a leopard. There is no like for the fourth beast. It is truly ferocious. It is unimaginable. There is no category because it is so ferocious. It's also, like an, an, sorry, it's also unlike anything else because there are no signs of dependence. No signs of dependence. The first beast was given the mind of a human showing that it needs someone from outside. The second beast was raised on one side, was told, you see, there's, there's authority outside this beast. The third, the leopard, was given authority. But there, there, is no, there is no kind of passive verb in here. It's all hubris, all defiance. This fourth beast has set himself up completely against God. And it has ten horns. And remember, horns are symbols for kings in the Bible. So there's ten kings. And then there's this little horn. This little horn that's scary and is speaking boastfully. Now this little horn is, as I think we'll see, the same individual that Paul calls the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians. Remember, some of us have been recently doing that. The man of lawlessness. Or who John calls the Antichrist. But as we saw when we were going through 2 Thessalonians just before Christmas, there are many little a antichrists. And so there are also many little l little horns who are opposing God's people throughout all history. And so that means that the, the, the first three beasts, Babylon, Persia, and Greece, they're in the past for us. But this fourth beast, it's, it's, it, it is Rome. But it's also something greater than Rome. It's, it's this, this opposition to the Most High God that spans throughout all ages. 
from the Roman Empire, yes, and Christ's first coming through to now and all the way to Christ's second coming. And so this, this, this section is called Scary Beasts because the scary beasts stand for scary history. And history is not pretty. It's just one kingdom vying for power after another. And so the, the question we are left to ask is, what is God's response to the scary and evil beasts? What is God's response to this scary and evil history? Our second section then, verses 9 to 14, the Son of Man. What is God's response? Court is in session. Verse 9, I looked, thrones are set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seats. And then, end of verse 10, the court was seated, and the books were opened. Court is in session. Now, the Ancient of Days takes a seat. We talked about his moral purity, his, how he doesn't need an apron in, in the children's bits. Uh, and then we have this fire around the presence of God. Fire because it's, it's his presence and it's also his burning judgment. And then you see this majestic worship, thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, all the angels worshiping God. It's wonderful. Sinclair Ferguson makes the point that Daniel so often has been the one who stands alone. And so it must have been refreshing to see him as one person and then, whoa, he's actually just part of a greater thing. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people worshiping and serving the Ancient of Days. And once the Ancient of Days takes his seat, the court is seated, the books are opened. And we have this brilliant view of heaven. But then we come to verse 11. Now, what verse 11 is, imagine you're on the top of Craig Fadrake, watching the sun set over the Bewley Firth, right? It's, it's a beautiful view when it's not cloudy. Top of Craig Fadrake, watching that sunset. If you haven't, I'm sure Ian's probably put some pictures on Facebook in the past. It's a, it's a beautiful, uh, it's, a, oh, it's a gorgeous view. Now imagine you're just watching the sun set those orange glows over the Bewley Firth, reflecting off the sea. Oh. And then imagine just in the corner of your eye, just, just a, kind of a few meters below you, there's some idiot with, with no sense of the beauty of the moment waving his torch in your face, trying to shine in your eyes. That's what verse 11 is. We're glimpsing into heaven. The Ancient of Days is sat at his throne, and this irritating little horn won't shut his mouth. And he just keeps on boasting. And it's the boastful words of the horn that turn our gaze from the Ancient of Days in heaven back to earth. So what's going to happen to this annoying little horn who's boasting against the Most High God? Well, condemnation is executed against the beast and the other three as well. All these power-hungry kingdoms are stripped of their authority. The Ancient of Days pronounces judgment and the little horn is thrown into the blazing fire. And who gets the authority? Where does this authority go? Well, it goes to one like the Son of Man. He gets the last look. Do you see how once our gaze has been distracted to the little horn, we then get to look again up into heaven. But now something else is happening in heaven. Because there before me was one like the Son of Man, one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approaches the Ancient of Days. Now what does this phrase Son of Man mean? Well, in Hebrew and Aramaic, when you describe someone as a son of something, you're saying that that person has the quality of the thing you're saying they're a son of. 
So you, you'll remember that Jesus calls James and John the sons of thunder. Okay, he's saying that they're thunderous people. Maybe they've got a bit of a short temper. Or remember when Amos says that he's neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. He's saying not only was he not a prophet, but there was nothing prophety about him at all. And so this a son of man, it's someone who's like, well, a man. So it means an anybody. So he sees someone like an anyone. So this, this figure, one like a son of man, he is one like anyone. Or maybe better, he looks human. He looks human, which in a world of, in a vision of ferocious beasts and white-haired, white-robed ancient of days, it's, it's probably quite refreshing to see one who looks pretty human. But this one isn't only human, you see. He, this son of man figure, he is human, but in verse 14, he receives worship. He receives worship, which is only for God or false gods in Daniel. And then his kingdom is described very much like God's kingdom. And I think here we see the God-man. Later revelation will flesh out the subtleties of the incarnation, but here we get a glimpse of he who was both made and never made, him who was both from Mary and from God, Jesus Christ our Lord. And he is wonderfully different from the beasts, wonderfully different. They are beasts, for starters. He looks human. They are from the churning, chaotic sea. He is heavenly with the clouds. When God appears in the Old Testament, it's pretty much always with the clouds. They are cast away into the fire, but he is able to approach the Ancient of Days and is led into his presence. And this is astounding. Jesus' ability to stand before his father, the Ancient of Days, while court is in session is amazing. Notice the direction of travel here. The Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven is coming into God's presence, not away from it. So what I think verses 13 and, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, 13 and 14 are is a picture of Jesus' ascension. He is coming into the presence, one who looks human, who is the God-man, coming into the presence of the Most High God. This is Jesus' ascension. Jesus, b- before he was about to be crucified, said, referencing this chapter, but I say to you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so the reason why this is wonderful is because when Jesus ascended into heaven, he had finished all his work of salvation that he needed to do. His being able to come before God's throne of judgment is his, his justification, his, his vindication that yes, it really is finished. He can stand in God's fiery court. He is the true man before God. None of us humans can stand, but he is the true human being standing in the presence of God. And so what is the outcome of God's vindication of his son? Well, it's verse 14. He was given authority and glory and power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. He is given a kingdom and he is worshipped. So what is going on here? 
in the face of all these godless and greedy kingdoms is the vindication of the God-man who has accomplished everything for salvation and is given an eternal kingdom. In that shorter phrase, the Son of Man receives the kingdom. The Son of Man receives the kingdom. But that's not all. Then we come to verses 15 and the rest of the chapter. This is this section, suffering saints, suffering saints. See, Daniel asks the, the meaning of, of what's going on. And, so, and then the, the, the person standing next to him, probably an angel or something, tells him the answer in verses 17 and 18. So almost you can see if the sermon so far was correct by looking at what he says in verse 17 and 18. Well, what does it say? He says, the four, ki- the four great beasts are the four kings that will arise from the earth. Okay. Verse 18. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Huh. It says the holy people of the Most High. Or sometimes it's you know, the saints. That's talking about us Christians. But these holy people of the Most High haven't actually been mentioned yet. So where have they come from? Where have they come from? It seems to me that they are related to the one like a son of man. Or even, we might say, that these holy people of the Most High are united to the Son of Man by the Spirit. This here is showing our union with Christ. Just as in Adam the first man all fell, so in the Son of Man will all receive the kingdom. Because we are in Christ, the result of his vindication is the result of our justification. We possess the eternal kingdom of God. And so in Christ, all the blessings that he receives are ours in him, in Christ. And so take a hold of Christ this morning. Now, If Daniel had just stopped praying and asking questions at verse 18, all would be well. But no, because he hadn't told us every detail of his vision. Daniel holds one detail back for verses 21 and 22. He says, as I watched, this horn, this little horn, the Antichrist, was waging war against the holy people and defeating them defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment. This little horn wages war against the saints, us, and is defeated. Can you, if I was writing the Bible, I would not have put that in because we have a a victorious, all-conquering king. But here it says that the, the horn is defeating us. Now, it's not, he, it's not that he finally defeats us, but he is defeating. And now the little horn will not completely defeat the Holy One because, so behold, the Holy Ones, sorry, us, because the Ancient of Days does pronounce judgment in our favor. But here's a quote from Sinclair Ferguson. He says, the people of God must learn that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of suffering. Let me say that again. The people of God must learn that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of suffering. The forces of hell will not prevail against it, but they will do all in their limited power to overwhelm the saints. 
That thought may devastate us, but if we learn to accept it, it may also stabilize us. If we learn to accept it, it may also stabilize us. It really should come as no surprise. Romans 8, verse uh, 16 to 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So that's receiving the kingdom. We're co-heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. We share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. You see, whilst this war and the defeating of the holy people happens in, ver- in between verses 8 to 9, chronologically if you like, we're not told about it until it has been emphasized that the Son of Man receives the kingdom and that the holy ones receive the kingdom in him. That is the important thing. We are, we will in Christ receive the kingdom. We will receive Christ. We will be united to him. But we then will suffer. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of suffering. And so Daniel's response in verse 28 is right. His face goes pale. His face goes pale because he sees his future brothers and sisters in the Lord the saints of which of whom he has fellowship in the Holy Spirit, he sees that they were going to suffer. He sees that Christians are to suffer and that other Christians will suffer and, and his face goes pale. And so it, it's here that this sermon has challenged me. I desperately want a comfortable life. I desperately want a life where nothing goes wrong. I need to hear the holy saints being defeated and God's judgment in their favor. I need to, need to hear that we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. There are two truths that we've got to hold together. We will suffer and we will reign. You can't have one without the other. We will suffer and we will reign. We share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that we are united to your Son. Thank you that we are justified, declared righteous in your Son. And thank you that we have and we will receive the kingdom in your Son. So please strengthen us to share in his sufferings that we may also share in his glory by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.